Well, uh, let me explain the title to you for a second of the message this morning. We are not talking about human warfare, not talking about the wars going on in Iraq or Afghanistan this morning, as important as those are. Uh, We're going to talk this morning about a far more important war going on, not just in one nation, but all across the world. A war that doesn't involve just thousands of soldiers, but billions of people in every nation of the planet. This morning, we're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about the cosmic battle that has been going on for millennia between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, a war for the hearts and minds and eternal destinies of the human race. Now, unfortunately, it's a war that most human beings are completely oblivious to. The vast majority of the human race does not realize that there is a war going on right now, right here, everywhere across the face of the planet, and that that obliviousness, that naivety does not just extend to non-Christians. Unfortunately, it includes many Christians as well. I was doing some research this week and came across a survey by a group named Barna. They survey American Christian beliefs, Uh, and in April 2009, they did a survey of 1,871 self-described Christians, so people who call themselves Christians. Of those 1,871 people, 60% believe that Satan is not a living being, but is only a symbol of evil. So 60%, he doesn't even exist. 35% of the respondents believe that he's real with a varying degree of belief. Some say, yeah, I'm certain he's real. Some say, I think he's real. And then that left 5% who don't know what to believe. They don't have a clue whether Satan exists or not. Now, uh, let, let me put those numbers in perspective for you for a second. Think about it. Okay. Out of all believers, we, we know from Scripture that all believers, all Christians, do have a, a fierce enemy named Satan, that he, he does exist, and that uh, Scripture portrays him as, as a very skilled hunter, as actually the most powerful created being, most powerful angel God ever created. And Scripture is clear that he is hunting us, that he is desiring us, that he wants to destroy us. First Peter 5, he is a roaring lion prowling around for one of us to devour. He is the enemy of all Christians. He's actually the enemy of the human race, but especially us. And yet out of all Christians, only one in three even believe he exists. Two thirds of the people that are in his sights that he is coming after think he's just a myth, a legend, a figment of our imagination. It would be as if you surveyed Americans back in 1942 and asked, do you believe in the Nazis? And two thirds of them said, nah, I think they're just a myth. You guys are making too big a deal this whole Nazi thing. It's just a figment of your imagination. It has been rightly said that the greatest trick the devil has ever pulled is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. The vast majority of Christians think he's just a myth. They do not realize that they are being hunted, that they are being pursued. They do not realize that they have an enemy of incredible power, the most powerful created being ever made, desires to destroy them. Now, when we look at the life of Jesus, we see very clearly that he did not share that naivete. Jesus understood as clearly as anyone about spiritual warfare. He knew that Satan existed. He knew about this battle going on outside of the realm of our vision, a battle going on all across the planet for the hearts and souls and destinies of human beings. When you read the Gospels, you see Jesus come face to face with the kingdom of Satan over and over again. I did a little survey of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John this week. I found 110 verses in the Gospel that directly mention demons or Satan. They're they're spread out evenly all, all the way through 
through, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're really full of them. Uh, There's these references to the existence and the activity of Satan and demons. And then I I looked a little more carefully, and I saw that in Matthew, the book we're going to particularly look at this morning, there are seven direct confrontations between Jesus and demonic powers. Seven times recorded in Matthew, he goes toe-to-toe with the kingdom of Satan. Mark has nine such incidents. Luke has ten confrontations between Jesus and the kingdom of Satan. In fact, you, you really can't understand the gospels or the ministry and life of Jesus unless you see them through the eyes of this global cosmic battle going on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. It is Satan who is Jesus's chief enemy. It looks on the surface as if Jesus is particularly opposed or confronting human beings, but that's not really his target. He's going behind human beings to the real power These spiritual forces, Satan and his demonic armies, that is who Jesus is opposed to. It is Satan, after all, who who motivates and fills Judas to betray Jesus. It is Satan who leads Peter to, to fall away from Jesus, to doubt Jesus. It is Satan who leads the whole nation of Israel to reject their Messiah. It is Satan who is Jesus's chief opponent. Throughout the life of Jesus, throughout his ministry, over and over again, he is coming into direct confrontation with the kingdom of Satan. The drama of Jesus' whole life is the unfolding of this warfare between his kingdom and the kingdom of Satan. Now, there's many events where Jesus goes toe-to-toe with Satan. One of the most significant is the one we're going to look at this morning, Matthew chapter 4. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at a passage that is no doubt familiar to many of us. Uh, We call this little event, this little passage, the temptation of Christ. The temptation of Jesus by Satan. Many of us are familiar with this account, but if Barna's statistics are to be believed, many of us have not yet learned the lessons that we need to learn from this event, from this confrontation between Jesus and Satan. So let's look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew starts by giving us some settings, some details to help us understand the background of what's going on. Look with me starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Now, uh, there's some very significant information just in those first two verses. First of all, we find out that this temptation of Christ, it had a purpose. Notice, who, who is it that brings about this trial, this temptation? Is it Satan? No, it's It's actually God. God, through the Holy Spirit, leads Jesus to the wilderness to confront Satan. Uh, Jesus did not come under temptation by accident. It wasn't an accidental thing that he finds himself in the wilderness. Jesus did not come under temptation by any fault of his own. He wasn't seeking out temptation. This was God's will that Jesus would be led into temptation with Satan. Now, why? Why would it be God's purpose to allow Jesus to experience this temptation? Well, let's review for a second from last week and let's set this piece of Jesus' life in the context of his whole ministry. Okay, what happens to Jesus right before the temptation? Let's look in your Bible. What's the event immediately preceding it? Baptism. Okay, what happens in the baptism? Well, Jesus allows himself to be baptized by John the Baptist, not for the removal of sins, but as a public declaration that he's the guy John was talking about. He is the Messiah. And, and at this baptism, what does God the Father do? God the Father says for all to hear, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What does son mean? We talked about that title last week. It means king. This is my king. He is your king. In him I am well pleased. Okay, that's what happens just before the temptation. What happens right after the temptation? 
What does Jesus do next? He begins his ministry. Notice he goes out and he begins preaching the message we talked about last week. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So right between the baptism where God says for all to hear, this is my man, this is my king. And right before Jesus goes out and launches his ministry, we have this incredibly important event, the temptation of Jesus. It's incredibly significant in the life of Jesus. What is it about? This is God's opportunity to Jesus to be tested, to be proven. Remember, what did Jesus come to do? We talked about the mission of the Messiah last week. Jesus came to restore the Davidic kingdom as its king and fulfill the biblical covenants. That's what the life of Jesus is about. He will go to the cross. Yes, that's coming. But he comes on the scene as king. I am your Davidic king. I'm bringing you the kingdom. I'm bringing the fulfillment of the Old Testament to you. Okay, but what had to be true of the person who would be king? He had to perfectly obey God. There were many kings in the Old Testament. There's David, there's Solomon, there's all these guys who were king, and yet none of them brought the eternal kingdom of God to earth. None of them fulfilled the covenant promises. Why? Because all of them blew it. All of them disobeyed. None of them perfectly obeyed God. So none of them could fulfill the promises of God. The whole world was waiting. When would the Davidic king come? When would the son come who would finally perfectly obey God and have the right to be the king of kings, the eternal king over the earth? Well, Jesus proves in the temptation, he's the man. He's the one. The one and only descendant of Abraham who ever perfectly obeyed God. The temptation is incredibly important in the life and ministry of Jesus. If we didn't have this account of the temptation, there would be a major hole in the ministry of Jesus. It's incredibly important because this is when Jesus demonstrates that he is worthy to be our king. That's what this is about. That's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this event. It's pivotal. Okay, so that's what's going on in this. The temptation of Jesus has a divine purpose. God is offering this test to his son so his son can demonstrate to the world that he is worthy to be the son, worthy to be the king. That's the purpose behind it. Second thing to notice about the setting of this temptation is that it comes at a moment when Jesus is vulnerable. From a human perspective, Jesus is at his weakest when we get to the events that we're about to read. Now, when you look closely, what you learn, okay, Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days, and during that time, he's eaten no food. Now, in Luke, it's actually a little clearer here. It says that during all 40 of those days, Jesus was being tempted by Satan. What we're about to read about, Satan didn't show up on day number 40 and all of a sudden tempt Jesus. Satan was there the whole time. It was a constant 40 days of temptation that culminate in the climax that we're about to read. What we have recorded is just the end, the final climactic attack of Satan. But for 40 days, he's been coming after Jesus. And you get a sense of that in Matthew. There's a very odd thing in verse 2. After 40 days, he became hungry. Well, it takes me about four hours to become hungry. (laughs) I'm going to want to eat here in about two hours. I really need food. Jesus apparently was not hungry for 39 days. Why? I think it's because the attack of Satan was so relentless, he wasn't even aware of his own hunger. That's the only conclusion I can draw. He is being besieged by Satan so much over and over again for 40 days that he's not even aware of his need for food. Then he becomes hungry. Finally, he's so desperate for food that he finally feels the hunger, and that's when Satan brings this climactic attack. Okay, so from a human perspective, Jesus is incredibly vulnerable. 
when we get to the events recorded in Matthew 4. He's been alone in the wilderness, no one to talk to, no one to help him, no one to support him, no companions at all for 40 days. He's been exposed to the elements. He's been without food. He is weak. He's been under the constant, relentless assault of Satan for 40 days. And then the attack comes at his most vulnerable moment from a human perspective, physically speaking. So that's the setting. Now Satan delivers his final barrage, final attack, and three temptations. I want to look at each of these. First temptation we find in verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Notice Satan goes right at the heart of, of the purpose behind this temptation. If you are the Son of God, that's the issue. Temptation number one, turn these stones to bread. Now, what I, I want you to notice, where is Satan hitting Jesus? What is he going after? It is a legitimate need. Satan's not tempting Jesus in some sinful realm of life, something that Jesus shouldn't be involved in. No, he goes after a legitimate need. Jesus needed food. Think about it, 40 days without food. Uh, doctors tell us that's about as long as you can go and survive. Jesus is probably in desperate need of calories. It's, it's probably a matter of life and death at that moment for him to eat. And Satan knows that. And so he says, Jesus, you need food. You're going to die without food. You've been 40 days without food. Make food for yourself. Okay, so, so Satan is going after a legitimate need, a desperate need. And, and notice that he's true in what he says. Uh, Jesus, you have the ability to turn stones into bread. We know Jesus can make food. He does that when he feeds the 4,000 and the 5,000. Jesus has that power. So Satan says, Jesus, you have the power. Satisfy your need. You need that. God created you to need food. It's a very logical temptation. Makes a lot of sense. Satan is challenging Jesus. Jesus, um, I think you need to go ahead and take care of your needs now. This is a legitimate need. You've got to fulfill your hunger. You've got to give your body calories. Satan hits Jesus with a legitimate need, but he's challenging Jesus to fill it in an illegitimate way. Who was it that led Jesus to the wilderness where he would not have food? It was God the Father. God had led Jesus there. Jesus needed to wait on the Father's timing. The Father had not yet sent Jesus to a town where he could get food. The Father had not yet provided food for Jesus. So Satan is tempting Jesus. Jesus, God's taken too long. You need to fulfill this need. If you don't fulfill it, you're going to die. Take care of yourself. So that's Satan's temptation. Again, very powerful, very logical temptation. Makes a lot of sense. How does Jesus respond? Well, verse 4, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now let me set that in context. Jesus is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3. Which reads, he humbled you. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. He's speaking of God. God humbled you Israelites and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Uh, Moses is looking at a situation that's very similar to what Jesus faced. The Israelites were led out of Egypt into the wilderness and for a number of days there was no food available. They're in the desert of Sinai. And what should they have done? Well, they should have cried out to God, God, we need your help. Please help us. Please provide us food. They didn't. Unfortunately, they wanted to turn back to Egypt. God was still faithful. What did he give them? Manna. He literally made bread fall from heaven. It was really cool. He took care of their needs. Jesus is basically saying to Satan, Satan, I can trust God. 
I can trust that God is going to provide my needs. Satan, I, I believe that the most important thing in my life is not food. It's not calories. The most important thing is the word or promises of God. I believe that God will provide for me just as he provided for them. Even if it means bread from heaven, he'll do it. He'll take care of my needs. Now, interestingly, Jesus proves right. Look at the end of the account. Verse 11, really cool verse. After the temptation is over, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. That verb minister, it means to serve. It certainly includes food. Literally, as soon as the temptation is over, God the Father provides angels who bring a meal to Jesus. God does provide. Jesus was right. You can count on the words of the Father. You can count on the promises of God. He'll take care of your needs. It's really cool to me. It's really, really convicting. Okay, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, he doesn't know if the Father's going to provide in five minutes or five hours or five months. He doesn't know when food is coming. And yet he chooses to remain faithful. And sure enough, mere moments after the temptation is over, food comes down from God. How often do I give in to Satan because I feel like God is never going to take care of me? Never going to get around to fulfilling me. It could be that God's fulfillment, God's provision is five seconds away if I will just wait. Jesus waited and God took care of his needs. So that's the first attack that Satan brings in this final climactic assault. He tempts Jesus with a legitimate need. A second thing that Satan does, second way he goes after Jesus is found in verses five and six. Then the devil took him into the holy city into Jerusalem, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This is really interesting. Jesus just silenced or, or refuted Satan's first temptation by doing what? By quoting scripture. So what does Satan do? He quotes scripture. He throws it right back at Jesus. This is a quote from Psalm 91. When you look at Psalm 91 and you study it, you actually find out uh, Satan quotes it rightly. He's accurate in his quotation. Uh, He's actually also right in his interpretation. The promise of Psalm 91 is all those who love God will be taken care of by God. God will protect them. Well, there's no human being who's ever loved God more than Jesus. So Psalm 91 certainly applies to Jesus. Satan is saying rightly, Jesus, this applies to you. If you throw yourself off the temple, God will protect you. He will use his angels to protect you. That's true. That's right. What's the problem with that? Accurate interpretation, wrong application. Satan is twisting this truth. What's the point of Psalm 91? God will protect you, so put your faith in God. Trust God. What is Satan's application? Doubt God. Test God. Put God to the test. I think this is what Satan is saying. Okay, Jesus, God just said in front of everyone that that you are the son. He told you that, but does he mean it? Jesus, you are about to start your ministry. You and I both know people aren't going to receive your ministry well. You and I both know that your ministry is going to end with pain and suffering. Can you count on God to provide for you? Do you know that God is going to deliver you? Do you know that he's going to take care of you? Jesus, you're about to take a big risk. Wouldn't it be better to get some proof? Jesus, wouldn't it be logical to prove that God has made you his son and will protect you and provide for you? Doesn't that make sense? Let's get some evidence, Jesus. Go throw yourself off the temple and and let God prove to you that he'll take care of you. That's a very logical temptation. Makes a lot of sense. Jesus was about to take a huge risk. Jesus, go get some evidence. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 7. 
Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6.16. Again, Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy. Jesus is saying, Satan, you're quoting that scripture right, but you are using it wrong. You are reversing it. It's meant to lead me to faith. You're, You're using it to lead me to doubt. I will not doubt my God. I don't have to put him to a test. I can take him on his word alone. I can believe that he will provide for me. And just like the first temptation, Jesus will be proven right. It'll take longer. Won't be till after Jesus dies that God will prove for all the world to see that he will deliver his son when he delivers him from death. That's the resurrection. It's the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 91. God the Father delivers Jesus from the dead and proves that he takes care of all who love him. So Jesus is going to be proven right. Satan is silenced again as Jesus turns to the word. Now we get to the third attack, third and final, and I I think the most uh, deadly of Satan's assaults against Jesus. Look with me at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. A couple things to notice about this temptation. Number one, notice uh, this is a legitimate offer. Satan is, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world. Every kingdom, every nation on this planet belongs to Satan. Yes, God is sovereign of the universe, but at this time he has given the kingdoms of the world to Satan. Satan is the God of all kingdoms, including this country. Every country belongs to him. And so Satan legitimately says, Jesus, this all belongs to me. I offer it to you. That's a legitimate offer. That's the first thing to notice. Second thing to notice, Satan is offering to fulfill the mission of Jesus. Do you notice that? It's real ironic. What did Jesus come to earth to do? To be king. What does Satan say? Let's give you the throne. Here you go, Jesus. I'll make you king. God always intended for Jesus to be king of the world, king of the whole earth. That is what it means that Jesus is the son. You are the king of kings. God's intention is for Jesus to be the king of all the earth. But how does God intend for it to happen? What would stand in the way of Jesus getting to the throne? What would he have to go through? The cross. Okay, as, as Jesus knew, as God the Father knew, and as I believe Satan knew, the road to the throne went through the cross. Now, you know enough about the cross to know it's a very painful thing. It was an incredibly painful uh, death. It, was, it involved incredible suffering. We know from reading the Gospels that Jesus did not look forward to the cross. Think about the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus was betrayed. What's he doing? He's on his knees weeping before God. God, please, if there is any other way, Please let this cup of suffering pass from me. Please don't make me go to the cross. Jesus desperately did not want to go to the cross. And so Satan steps in and he says, I'll tell you what. I'll give you the goal, but I'll save you the pain. I'll give you the earth. I'll let you be king of the whole earth, but without going through the cross. You don't have to do that. You don't have to experience suffering and pain. I'll give it to you the easy way. Oh, just one catch you just have to worship me for a minute. Just give me a little bit of worship. Just fall on your knees and worship me for a second. That's no big deal. That's nothing compared to the pain and suffering of the cross. I'll take away all that pain if you'll just worship me for a moment. How does Jesus respond? Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, Deuteronomy, this is Deuteronomy 6.13. What Jesus is saying to Satan is, Satan, you know what? The ends do not justify the means. Yes, you could get me the throne, 
but it would involve disobedience to the Father, and that's not a price I'm willing to pay. I will not worship you. I'm taking that option off the table. It is not an option to me to give you worship. I will stay in obedience to my Father, even though that means the suffering of the cross. The ends do not justify the means. Now, as in the other temptations, notice who will be vindicated in the end. It's Jesus. There's this neat verse right at the end of the book of Matthew where Jesus shows up after the cross and after the resurrection and he says to the disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, because Jesus obeyed, he got it all. He actually got more than Satan offered, not just authority over the earth, but authority in heaven as well. Jesus got it all because he knew the ends do not justify the means. I will stay faithful to God the Father no matter what the cost. Again, I look at that and I think, man, that was a brilliant temptation. Satan hits Jesus right where it hurts most. I'll give you the goal without the pain of the cross. And yet Jesus stayed faithful. And so the account comes to an end. Jesus sends Satan away. Jesus has passed the test. This temptation, it's really not about us. This passage is not about us. Again, it's about Jesus. This is the public demonstration that Jesus is the one and only human being who has ever been worthy of being called son, who is worthy to be the eternal king over the earth. That's what this temptation proves. Now, even though that's the big idea that it proves Jesus' worth, there's still lessons that we can learn from it. So not only did Jesus prove faithful, but he proved faithful in a way that we can follow. Jesus gives us a pattern of what to do. Notice he didn't pull out the God card in this temptation, didn't wipe out Satan. Now he did things that we can do. We can follow the example of Jesus in this temptation account when we face temptation. So that's what I want to do with the rest of this morning. I want to learn a few lessons from this. I want to pull out three lessons that we can see in the example of Jesus when we face spiritual warfare. So let's talk about those for a moment. Lesson number one uh, that I think is inescapable is we need to know our enemy. If we want to learn from Jesus, number one, we need to know our enemy. A few things that we need to know about our enemy, about this guy we call Satan. Number one, we need to realize he does exist. Whether we believe in him or not, he does exist. Satan absolutely does exist. He is pursuing us. He is hunting us. Um, It says in the Bible, all of the human race is under the power of Satan. He is an enemy to all human beings, but he is especially an enemy to us. See, at some point in our past when we believed in Jesus as our Savior, when we trusted that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead, God did something big that really frustrated Satan. He took us out of the kingdom of Satan and transferred us into the kingdom of his son and Satan has never forgiven him for that. As a result, Satan is after you. He is seeking, he is putting all of his power uh, on the intention of destroying you. When you accepted Jesus as as your savior, you put a big fat target on your back. Satan is desperate to destroy you because he is furious. You've been transferred out of his kingdom and in the kingdom of Christ. So Satan is after you. The, the primary drama of our lives, the battle of our lives is not with other human beings. It is with Satan. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness and the heavenly places. Every day of our lives will be a battle between us and our allegiance with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. He is constantly pursuing us. Now, there is a little bit of balance needed here. Uh, It is possible for us to make too much of spiritual warfare. 
This is the believer who chalks up everything bad in their life to Satan. Uh, If I'm struggling with sin, that is Satan. That is a demon in my mind. If, If I'm struggling with illness, if I get sick, that is Satan. If I have a broken relationship or stress in relationships, that is Satan. If I lose my job, that is satanic attack. Well, the Bible actually doesn't give us any way of determining whether a specific event is caused by Satan. There's no formula for determining. Is it Satan or is it actually just my own sin? Is it actually just the fact that the world is broken? What is it causing this? Bible doesn't tell us. It could be any one of those. It could be all three of those. It could be Satan working together with my flesh, working together with the world. We don't know the exact causation of any given event. What we do know is that Satan exists and he is constantly attacking us. And I think the place where I know I struggle, the, the extreme that I tend towards, which probably a lot of, of you do as well, is not making too much of spiritual warfare, but making too little of it. For so many of us, we live oblivious to the fact that there is a battle going on around us. That's, that's my problem. I, I go through this, this day, I go through this life, and, and I know factually, I know theologically that Satan exists and, and that he is doing battle, seeking to destroy me. I know that factually, but I live as if it's not true. I, I live completely unaware of the spiritual warfare going on around me because I'm so blinded by the distractions of this world. There's so much to see, I don't think about what I can't see about this cosmic battle going on. It's a, it's a little bit like deer hunting. Those of you who are hunters of deer, you go out and you deer hunt. You just a few months ago. Um, what is your strategy in deer hunting? Well, you try above all else to make sure that deer does not know you are hunting it. You get up in a blind where it can't see you. You get upwind and make sure you don't have any scent on you that it can smell. You, you muffle your movement so you don't make a sound until you take that final shot. It's exactly how Satan operates. His, he, he is desperate to make sure we don't know that he has us in his crosshairs, that he is hunting us. Okay, so first of all, we need to learn from Jesus. Our enemy does exist and he is hunting us. He is after us. We need to make enough of spiritual warfare. We need to be aware of the battle that's going on. That's the first thing to know about our enemy. Second thing to know about our enemy is what his weapon is. What is Satan's primary weapon? Now you think about how does, how does Hollywood portray Satan? Well, as this ugly, scary, terrifying looking demon who, who does all these crazy supernatural things. He possesses people. He makes them levitate. Those are the tools of Satan as portrayed by Hollywood, but that's not biblical. Yes, Satan, I guess, probably can look scary and, and, and Satan probably and can certainly do things like possess people and do crazy supernatural things. But how does Satan usually operate? Through deception. That's Satan's primary tool against us. Uh, it's interesting, I, I looked at a, a book named, called The Art of War. It was written by a, a Chinese general, Sun Tzu, about 500 BC. And in it, he rightly concludes, all warfare is based on deception. That, that's proven true. All warfare is based on deception. No one knows that better than Satan. All of his schemes against you are based on deception. He is incredibly skillful at lying. Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, you are of your father the devil, And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. I don't know if you realize that Satan is actually the inventor of deception. 
God didn't invent deception. God's not interested in deception. That's contrary to his character. Satan's the one who invented the lie. He has been practicing and developing and mastering the art of deception for thousands of years. He's the best liar there is. He's incredibly skillful at deception. And look at how subtle his lies are. How skillful he is at deception. Think about the attacks on Jesus. Did you notice that in every attack that Satan brings, there is a kernel of truth? Jesus, you need food. Jesus, you have the power to turn those stones into food. Jesus, in Psalm 91, God promised he'll take care of you. Jesus, these kingdoms, they belong to you. They're your rightful possession. You should have them. That's all true. Satan had kernels of truth. He was so close to the truth in every attack against Jesus. He he took the truth and he just twisted it just a little bit. He just went slightly skew of truth. That's how Satan operates. He doesn't come at you with a bold-faced lie. That would be too obvious. No, he whispers something that is so close to the truth. It sounds so reasonable. That's how Satan operates. He wants to put a veil of deception over your eyes. That's why Satan can fool PhDs and people with master's degrees, incredibly brilliant people, because he is the best deceiver ever. He is far wiser than we are. He knows exactly how to hit us, exactly how to take the truth and just twist it a little bit. Just go a little askew of the truth to lead us astray. It's interesting when you look at this weapon of Satan, you realize this battle, spiritual warfare that's going on around us, it is ultimately a battle played out right here. Battle in our minds, battle for our thoughts, battle for our beliefs. Satan is doing everything he can to bring our beliefs into doubt. He is constantly calling into question, is God really good? Does God really care about you? Can you really trust in God's timing? Is sin really that big a deal? Isn't that sin reasonable? Isn't it excusable? He's constantly leading you towards lies, but he'll do it in incredibly subtle ways. Our enemy is a skillful deceiver. That's the second thing to know about him. Third thing to know about him, he knows your weaknesses. Satan knows your personal vulnerabilities probably better than you do. Notice again, how did Satan go after Jesus? He went after his vulnerabilities. He hits Jesus when Jesus is weakest, when Jesus is alone, when Jesus is hungry, when Jesus is exposed to the elements, when Jesus is tired. That's when Satan attacks. And he attacks Jesus in in these most vulnerable spots. He doesn't go after something that Jesus doesn't care about. He goes after what Jesus cares most about. He knows exactly where to hit him. Satan is incredibly skillful. He knows our vulnerabilities. It's actually interesting. The Luke account of the temptation ends. uh, Jesus sends Satan away. It says that Satan leaves until an opportune time. Satan doesn't head out. Satan just backs off enough because he's just been whipped. So he just backs off a bit where he can continue to observe the life and ministry of Jesus and look again for those vulnerabilities. Look for just the right moment to strike again. That's how Satan operates. He is a skillful hunter who is always watching you. He is constantly observing your life. Satan is a student of you. You may not realize that. He is studying what makes you tick so that he understands best how to attack. Now that leads us actually to the second lesson. So number one, know your enemy. Number two, know yourself. Know your vulnerabilities. Know the circumstances that make you vulnerable to spiritual attack. Here's, here's my list right there. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed, discouraged, or on vacation. Years of my life, these are the circumstances that I have found make me particularly vulnerable 
to spiritual attack. When these are present in my life, I'm vulnerable. I am open to attack. I'm not at my best. I am weak. I am ripe to be hit. Okay, now let me explain the last one. Kind of seems different than the others, doesn't it? Got a list of very negative things and then vacation. How can that be bad? Well, one of the first vacations Julie and I took uh, once we were married was to Colorado. We took off during summer when it was so hot in Texas. We went to Colorado, the mountains for a week, and we'd planned that vacation for a while. We were incredibly excited about it as the temperatures got hotter and hotter here in Texas. We just looked so forward to getting into the mountains. We looked forward to it for months. So we, one day, the, the day arrives, and we hop in the car, and we drive to Colorado. We drive up into the mountains. We, we get to our hotel. We check in. It's wonderful. We are so excited. We are so joyful. Then I notice as as the days begin to progress, we get to day number two and day number three, I I notice this attitude begin to develop in me. We're in Colorado. Here's my one chance of the year to take a vacation from work. I get to be in the mountains. I love the mountains. I want to do as much hiking and mountain biking as I possibly can. That's what I love. And so you would think, well, uh, today I, I should go into the mountains. I should spend time on my mountain bike. I kind of deserve that. I've worked hard for all these weeks. I've earned money so we could have a home and, and a life. And now this is my vacation. I deserve to get, I could go hiking and get to get on my bike. Yeah, okay, Julie would really rather um, kind of spend some time back here at the hotel watching a movie and relaxing, eating a nice dinner. Yeah, but, but what about my time? I, I deserve to get to go up in the mountains. I, I deserve to get to go do what I want. This is my vacation. Man, I just found myself besieged by selfishness. I struggled with selfishness during that trip as much as I ever have. What I realized is you get a vacation from work, you don't get a vacation from spiritual warfare. Satan never takes a vacation from attacking you. As I had driven to Colorado, I left all my worries behind in Texas, including the worry about spiritual attack. I let my guard down. I assumed I'm on vacation, it's all good. I left myself open for attack. And so I added vacation to my list. From now on, when we get to our vacations, they're wonderful, they're joyful, but I know I'm going to be attacked. I'm going to be tempted to let my guard down. I'm going to be ambushed on this vacation somewhere, somehow. So now I go in prepared. I pray, I talk to my accountability partners because I know that is a vulnerability for me. So let me challenge you, give you a specific application. I I would like for uh, all of us, Maybe sometime this afternoon, if you can take a few minutes or some morning this week, if you will prayerfully reflect on your life and list out, you can take your journal or a sheet of paper, list out what are your vulnerabilities? What are the particular circumstances in your life that make you particularly vulnerable to spiritual attack? You may share some of mine. Maybe that when you're stressed, that's when you're liable to be attacked. Maybe it's different than mine. Each person has a a unique list. Let me ask you, sometime this week, take your journal and list out what are the circumstances that make you vulnerable. That's the first application. When you know what your vulnerabilities are, second application for all of us is look out for them. When you notice those vulnerabilities present in your life, when you notice stress coming on, when you notice anger coming on, when you notice loneliness coming on, be alert, be aware, be sober, be expecting attack. All of us will be attacked by Satan. What we can do is make sure we're not ambushed by him. We can go through life aware, looking out for spiritual warfare. When you see these vulnerabilities in your life, take a moment, hit pause and turn to the Lord because the attack's coming. When you get in your car after a bad day at the office and you feel stressed out, you feel frustrated, you feel angry, probably good to turn the radio off for a moment, turn the Lord in prayer because Satan's probably laying an ambush for you right that moment. 
going to walk in the front door and he's going to hit. Be ready. Be looking out. Be on the lookout for spiritual attack. Your enemy never takes a break. He's constantly looking for your vulnerabilities to hit you when you're down. That's what Satan loves to do. He loves to kick us when we're down. So be aware of your vulnerabilities and be at watch for them. A third and final lesson that I think this account has for us, that the example of Jesus has for us. When Satan does attack, you have one weapon, the word of God. Rely on the word of God as your one weapon to drive away Satan. It's interesting. Every time that Satan attacks, Jesus quotes scripture. What's really interesting is not so much that he quotes scripture, but who it is that's quoting scripture. Who is Jesus? Isn't he God? Human flesh? Son of God? Second member of the Trinity? All-powerful creator? Lord of heaven and earth? And yet, what does he rely on? He never pulls out the God card. He turns to scripture. He models for us there is one weapon in spiritual warfare that you have. It's the word of God. It is the one thing that you have that can cut through the fog of Satan's deception. That's how Satan's operating. He wants to drop a veil of, of deception over your eyes so that you can't see truth clearly, so that sin seems reasonable. You have one weapon that can cut through that fog of deception, and that's the word of God. It's interesting. In Ephesians 6, Paul has this extended discussion of spiritual warfare, and he lists all of these things that we have available for us from God in the battle. And, and he lists out a bunch of defensive weapons, a breastplate, a shield, a helmet, all these kind of things. And at the end of his list, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In this list of all the things that God gives us, there is only one offensive weapon mentioned. It's the word. Th- this book, this is the only weapon you have against Satan. Your intellect won't cut it. That's why Satan can deceive PhDs around the world. It's not about how smart you are. You can't refute Satan with your intellect. It's not about your strength. It's not about your resolve. It's not about your experience. It's not about your friends. It's not about your church involvement. None of that can cut through the deception of Satan. He is too good. He is too powerful for you. He is far too good a liar for you to stand against. You have only one weapon, and that's the word of God. This is the only thing that can fight back when he attacks. And so let me get practical for a moment. What does that mean for us this semester? Well, it means that we need to be reading, studying, and memorizing the word of God. Now, I've underlined the last one because nine times out of 10, when Satan attacks, it's probably not gonna be when your Bible's open in front of you. It's probably not during your quiet times that he's gonna attack. That's not when you're vulnerable. He knows better. I mean, maybe it's gonna come then, but probably it's gonna come when your Bible's at home, when your Bible's not accessible, That's when he's going to attack. That is why scripture memory is so valuable. Notice Jesus didn't carry around a Torah with him. He didn't have a scroll he could pull out of his pocket. Okay, let me look that up. All right, there we go. No, he had it all up here. Now, apparently, as Jesus was able to quote three verses that perfectly answered each of Satan's temptations, he must have had a lot of other verses memorized. He didn't know where Satan was going to hit him. He had a bunch of scripture memorized, so he was able to pull out exactly the right response from scripture each time. That's the example for us. So I want to challenge everyone in this room this semester. Let's set a goal for ourselves. Um, let's, let's pick uh, the first one and the third one in particular. Read the word of God. Let me challenge you uh, to spend time this semester reading scripture. And I, I want to challenge you. Uh, I, I, I would imagine a lot of you've probably never read through the entire New Testament. Okay, the, the Bible would be great. That's a lot for one semester. So let's just talk about the New Testament. If you've never read through the New Testament, uh, let me encourage you to do it this semester. If you've done it before, do it again. 
You can read straight through or you can spend a little time in the Gospels, then Paul, then James, and back to the Gospels, however you want to do it. Let's, as a congregation, let's spend a lot of time reading Scripture this semester. And then the third thing on the list, let's spend time memorizing it. I want to challenge everyone in this room, myself included, let's set a goal for ourselves. Let's not just leave here with kind of a thought, well, I should memorize Scripture. Let's set a goal. I think it's very reasonable that all of us this semester would memorize 20 verses of Scripture. That's about five per month. We've got four months this semester. Five verses per month. Let's, let's, as a group, let's commit to that. Let's memorize five verses a month. Have them in your mind. Review them on a periodic basis so that you will be ready to answer when Satan comes calling. Now, I'll leave it to you to choose what passages or what verses you want to memorize. It's, it's best to, to turn first to some of the promises of God. Those are great to have in mind because you can specifically answer the lies of Satan if you have the promises of God memorized. A good one you can write on your list, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. That's a great promise. There's no temptation taken me, but such as is common to us all. God will be faithful. He will provide a way of escape. So where is it? Okay, I'm looking for the way of escape. Okay, memorize passages. You can start with that one. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Let's all, let's commit to that. This semester, 20 verses that we're gonna add to our arsenal. These are like bullets. I mean, that's the way to put it. We don't use swords so much these days. These are bullets. In your arsenal, you are ready to pull them out and fire them when you are attacked. Okay, so let's commit 20 new verses to memory this semester to help us, to enable us, to strengthen us, to give us this tool that we can use when Satan comes calling. Let's let's close in prayer and let's ask the Lord to help us to live each day under the reality that there's a war going on. Lord God, we thank you so much that as we study this subject, um, we, we know and have hope in the fact that as incredibly powerful as Satan is, he is nothing compared to you. Thank you so much that this enemy that we face uh, is, is nothing more than uh, a creature that you made and that you will one day judge. But we know that in the meantime, until your judgment upon him comes, Lord, we know that he is powerful and that he seeks our destruction. We know, Lord, that he is waging war on this planet, that he has the vast majority of the human race blinded and enslaved to his purposes. And we know that he is constantly working to, de- to trip us up and to destroy us. He works in our minds. He works through our flesh. He works through the world. Lord, we, we want to be aware of this war. Please, Lord, give us sight to see it. Lord, when, when armies came and were attacking the city that Elisha was in, you gave vision to Elisha's servant to see the multitude of angels that you had sent to wage war upon the kingdom of Satan. I pray, Lord, that this semester, whether you give us that sight or not, that you would give us all the capability of seeing and believing that a spiritual war is going on right now for the hearts and minds and eternal destinies of every person in this quiet little town of College Station as well as every person on the planet. Help us to be aware and cognizant of that. Help us not to live in fear, but to live in confident trust upon you. And I pray for these specific applications, Lord. I pray that you would give us each faithfulness to take time today or this week to to list out our vulnerabilities, to become aware of what the circumstances are that will lead to attack. And second, Lord, to spend time in your word. I pray that everyone, including myself, Lord, that we would be faithful to read your scripture often and uh, throughout this semester, Lord, and to memorize it. Please help every one of us to commit it to memory so that we'll be able and ready and capable of resisting the attacks of the evil one. Thank you for giving us the tool of your word. We pray that we would be faithful to use it. Thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, who proved faithful when he was tempted and set an example for us. 
It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, next week we'll continue looking at the life of Christ. Uh, If you are new to Grace Bible Church or you've not been around here much, I encourage you, we're about to have Discover Grace. I'm heading there right now. It's meeting in the office area right through the foyer. Come join us and we'll tell you about this church. God bless.